3: Welcome to the program, it's Tuesday, I hope you had a wonderful Veterans Day, and for those of you who got the day off, I pray it wasn't too cold for you to really enjoy it. Hey, in case you're wondering, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, questions about our faith, why we believe, what we believe, and... How you can believe it, whatever you want to do, we'll do that for you the best we can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're out in the streets driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. It's Tuesday. It feels like Monday, but it's Tuesday. We don't have a lot going on, so one important thing that I get to share with you today. It is a praise report. Um, I have let it be known from time to time on this radio program that we have people that we pray for on a continual basis um, for different things, and uh, one of the things that we pray for, and I've got a group of people that I've been praying for for a long time, uh, parents who want, or, or prospective parents who want to have babies but are unable to have babies. And I pray for these people faithfully, daily, some in our church who are in that situation, others who are radio callers who say, would you put me on that prayer list? And one of them, one who's called here a few times on the program over the years, uh, her name was Ola, and we've asked for prayer for Ola and her husband, Kenny, um, over the years, and One of those ladies I've been praying for was Ola. Well, I told you um, about nine months ago that Ola was pregnant and asked to keep you in prayer. Well, we got a phone call. She was uh, in the hospital, and she gave birth to Demalida, Demalida Joshua. she says that Dimly means I have been crowned by the Lord. They call him Demi for short. He was born on... Veterans Day, Sunday, at 1025 in the morning, seven pounds and 20 inches in length. Ola, we just want you to know that we are absolutely thrilled. I got the picture, by the way. Paula sent it to me. So uh, what a beautiful baby boy, truly crowned by the Lord. But these are the kind of things that we just love to hear, the praise reports. You know, so often it seems like God isn't hearing our prayers or answering, uh, but... um God heard Ola's prayers and ours, and the result is beautiful, beautiful baby boy. So, Ola, God bless you and Kenny. Thank you very, very much for keeping us in the loop. It has been a privilege to pray for you uh, for these years. I think it's been, I was trying to figure out, and I can't, I don't do real well with time frames, but I think it's been about three years that we've been praying for this child, and it's really, really nice to know that the Lord hears prayers. Uh, That brings to mind another thing this weekend, Sunday in church here at Calvary Chapel. um, We had a baby dedication. Seems like we have a baby dedication all the time here at Calvary. Um, um, Noah Perez was uh, eight months old. We got to dedicate him uh, this Sunday, and it was unlike any baby dedication I've ever done uh, prior to um, them coming on stage uh, I was able to go down and talk to him and he jumped out of his mom's arms to come to me just jumped out of his mom's arms and I got to hold for it. then I had to go get ready we are doing worship and then coming up on the stage uh, when we got on the stage he came to me again right away and the entire time I was talking and praying, the entire time, he was staring directly into my eyes. And it was an amazing thing. And I, I just think, oh, Lord, what a job I have. It's just the best job ever. So we're doing well with kids right now. One more time, 340-9585. Here's a question from our mobile app from Lori. Um, she said, would you please explain Hebrews 8:11? is this speaking of the millennium? Well, Lori, let me read it. I'm going to go all the way back to uh, verse 8 and read this uh, because you've got to set this in, in your context. Let me say it is not about the millennium. Um, in fact, let me go back to verse 7. Uh, Paul, who I believe to be the writer of Hebrews, Said, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time declares the Lord I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts I will be their God and they will be my people and here's the verse Laurie asked about no longer will a man teach his neighbor Or man his brother saying "Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest and then the next verse is the one that we can really give thanks for. It says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, Lori, is um, quoting the prophet Jeremiah and explaining why this covenant is so superior. Um, Jesus' ministry was superior to to any of the others. Uh, And what he's saying is, look, this new covenant uh, is necessary because the old covenant didn't accomplish the purpose of God. What's the purpose of God? Fellowship with mankind. So um, at the time Jeremiah wrote this, um, he's looking down the corridor of time and space to a time when the old covenant, the covenant of law, is going to be done away with. Jesus is going to live his life. He's going to live it with sinless perfection. They're going to kill him. He's going to be our sacrifice. He's not going to stay dead, of course. And that's how we know that his ministry was superior, because it was final. I love the way Hebrews begins, just this whole beautiful book. It says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in son. In other words, Jesus is God's final word. And the reason the new covenant was necessary because the old covenant only pointed out our inability to fellowship with God because we couldn't stay away from sin. So the new covenant, the covenant that Jesus toasted in effect in the upper room, was the covenant of grace. And that makes his covenant and Jesus' ministry superior to any other ministry. So it's not about the millennium, uh, although it will be true also about the millennium, but this was pointing, Lori, to the ministry of Jesus um, hundreds of years after Jeremiah. So I hope that helps. 3409585, let's get the week started with phone calls. It's really cold out there, so if you're sitting by a fireplace... um, good time to call just don't tell me that you're sitting by a fireplace and I'll get jealous here is a question from Derek he says Pastor on, do you disagree with any of the five points of Calvinism and also how can you reconcile God's sovereignty and free will well Derek let me start with the the, the second part of your question um, I'm not going to take 20 minutes and I could easily do an hour on this question um, we don't have to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's free will God who lives outside of time and space knows everything we're going to do. So he's not surprised, Derek, by anything that we do, any of the choices that we make. It's not like if I do something wrong, God says, oh, I can't believe it, and I don't know what I'm going to do. He knows exactly what I'm going to do. He also knew that there would be a day in February of 1991 when I would give my heart to him. And so in his sovereign power, and in what I call his stubborn love, because he knew that day would come, he chose to love me, Derek, when I was unlovable. He knew I was going to exercise my free will. And all of the time leading to that point, no matter how horribly I behaved, no matter the things I said about God or did against God, he refused to remove his love for me. So, in his sovereignty he appointed me because he knew I was going to say yes to the invitation to receive Christ, and in my free will I responded to the call that everybody everybody gets. So uh, Derek, there's tension between God's sovereignty and man's free will only if we fail to understand that God knows the end from the beginning. And God's sovereignty, His sovereign power, in fact, is never more beautifully demonstrated than using even that which is evil, that which opposes to Him, to accomplish His perfect will. So, um, you don't have to reconcile, you just have to realize that there are two sides of the same coin. My pastor used to say that uh, when we get to heaven, he said there will be a sign on the gate that says, enter of your own free will. And then when we get through that gate and point back to the gate, we'll look on the other side and it will say, chosen by God. So there's no tension at all when we understand that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Uh, Derek, the other part of your question, this is one I could take an hour with, but I won't. Um, Basically, I disagree with all five of the points of Calvinism, at least the way Calvinists define them. Um... Total depravity. Um, yes, we are born into sin. We are born condemned. Jesus told Nicodemus that in John chapter 3. Every person who's born, you know, beautiful baby Noah who we dedicated yesterday, as precious and cute and loving as he was to me, you know, he's a sinner. And when he's aware of his sin, apart from Jesus Christ, like everybody else, we'd be condemned to an eternity in hell. That's why we dedicate Him. That's why we pray for Him and love Him and raise Him in the ways of the Lord. But total depravity doesn't mean that we're so dead that we can't make a choice. Any more than it means we're dead and we can't walk around. You know, we're, we're dead spiritually, but we're still doing alive things, living things. Well, the same thing is true as the Spirit of God points to Jesus, as the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin well that same spirit begins to draw us to Jesus so their definition of total depravity makes no sense to me unlimited election I think the U ought to be the, sec- the third point in, in, in the Calvinist acronym of TULIP limited atonement it ought to be unlimited atonement I don't believe that God died only for a certain few. The Bible couldn't be any more clear, and they have to redefine terms to come up with it. When they champion unlimited atonement, they, well, no, it means God died for the elect. No, it doesn't. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever, it's as though the Holy Spirit is affirming it. So election is true? But unlimited election, no. Uh, limited atonement is, in my view, the most grievous part of Calvinism. It is pure evil to say that God died only for those He chosen. You know, every time, Derek, that you ask a Calvinist, well, does that mean God created some people? to go to hell and some people go to heaven how is that just and their answer is always the same well who are we to question God well we can't have a God who lives outside of his nature and his character the other one the next one that I disagree with their interpretation is irresistible grace God's grace and God's will is resisted every day by most people in the world If God was really pushy about irresistible grace, we'd all be robots. So His grace is not irresistible. We prove it daily. And then the perseverance of the saints. It's true that in the end, those who are His will stand with Him in victory. We're going to get there if we just hang in there. So I think their definition is that if somebody's chosen by God, they're going to get to heaven no matter what, even if they don't want to. That's simply not true. So, Derek, I I disagree with all of them as they are defined. Now, we could take that acronym and we could turn it into something useful, but Calvinism has not done that. Let me say, when I always talk about this, when people ask me these questions I want to make it clear that Calvinism is not heresy Calvinism misrepresents the character of the nature of God Reformed theology does but it is not heretical it doesn't mean that Calvinists, though wrong, are not my brothers and sisters in the Lord so I hope that helps thank you Derek for the question here is a question from Matt he says um, is not giving stealing from God Um, Matt in a theocracy uh, which God had with Israel uh, it was clearly stealing from God that's what he says through the prophet God tests them give and blessings will be poured out But in a New Testament context, Matt, not giving is being foolish, but remember it's not stealing as well, either. So I think the inference of your question is that if anybody's not giving, then God's angry, God treats them as though they're a thief, that's not the case. Now, we have to understand the difference between the two covenants. When God said, you steal from God to his people Israel, it's because they had made an agreement under the covenant of law to give a tenth of their wealth, however, whatever form that took, to God then they would make another promise to give a tenth to support the temple and the Levitical priesthood. And then there would be a smaller offering that was taken for other things. And they did that as a covenant agreement, but but then they stopped giving. Now that's not unusual, we understand human nature and in the same way we often stop giving. But remember that's under a covenant that's been abandoned. We live in the New Covenant in the upper room. Jesus said, this is the cup of the New Covenant written in my blood. And the New Covenant, what we're told is not that 90% of our stuff is ours and 10% belongs to God. But what we're told is that everything that we have belongs to God. That's why Paul wrote, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... In other words, after watching what God has done, after being the the beneficiaries of, of everything God has promised and performed for us, he says, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Now, man, I might say that if we're not living holy lives, if we're not living a life pleasing to God, then we're stealing from him because we belong to him. We're not our own. We're bought with the price. But this doesn't have anything to do with money specifically. What we are to do is offer God everything that belongs to Him. And certainly money's part of that. I've heard many pastors say things like, I try to avoid saying these kind of things because I don't like cliches, but all you have to do to find out where guy's heart is is go through his checkbook. Um... God knows where our hearts are. Should we give? Of course we should give. Should we give ten percent? No, we should give way more than that. If that was under the law requirement, how much more should those of us who are under grace give? So yeah, we should give. And we should give generously, we should give cheerfully. And we do it realizing that a hundred percent of what I have, Lord, is yours. How much do you want of your stuff? And how much do I get to keep of your stuff? No, he's got to let you keep most of it all the time. But Matt, giving is a privilege. It's a get to, not a got to. I hope that makes sense. I'm going to come back and talk about that one more thing in a minute. We've got a phone call. Let's go to Kathleen calling on line one from San Antonio. Thank you for calling, Kathleen. You're on the air.
2: Hi there, Pastor. I don't know if you started the ball rolling with that uh, Calvary—I mean uh, uh, Calvinism—discussion, but um, it was it was interesting. It got me to thinking because I have been going on uh, and looking up the pre-Nicene Christians, and apparently Mm -hmm. they had a completely different opinion of. Free will. They believed we had free will, and um, th- we, and so they didn't mention, uh, depravity or a sin nature, but Augustine, you know, this great father, which I did not know that he believed in forced conversions with violence and, uh, <laughs> to, to convert. Uh, yeah, and, and he was very much, he said, no, we're born this horrible sin nature, and we don't really have a lot of choices. So he was against free will, and I thought, wow, and he's a saint. You know, and a lot of the saints of the Catholic Church are actually, they're, they're quite uh, militant in, in some ways. But anyway, I just found it very fascinating that you were talking about that. I think there's a lot more to learn, don't you?
3: Well, I I think so. I think, Kathleen, one of the things things that we really need to do is is appreciate church history and those um, giants of our faith that went before us without elevating them to uh, a a, a position that they they could never live up to. Uh, The truth of the matter is that, that church history has always been replete with doctrinal error church history has always depended too much on tradition and not enough on the word of God uh, as you look at you talked about catholic saints um, um, the, the bible says that we're all saints Augustine is no more saint than you are uh, no more saint than I am um, but, but, but we, we, we raise them to a level um, that, that they could never possibly achieve and we value what they've said too much and the truth of the matter is all we have to do is look at church history and we find out that doctrinal error has always been there. The reliance on tradition, the, the um, um, differences between spirit and flesh have always been that place of tension. And I think what we need to do is understand that, that once we turn strictly to the Bible, if there's one thing that we have an advantage of, that over over those who lived in, in centuries past, is we have the understanding that our Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And in our church culture, Kathleen, when people are in trouble, when their, their lives fall apart, uh, when their doctrine falls apart, it's because they're not paying attention to the apostles' doctrine as we were instructed to in the second chapter of Acts. And um, so while I appreciate what Jerome and what Origen and, and, and what so many of the others did, I appreciate John Calvin, and I appreciate Martin Luther, and I appreciate the stands that they took for the Word of God. I, I, I appreciate those who risked their lives to be on the, the councils. Um, we really need to understand that we don't need them anymore. We can thank God for them, and we understand. That they were a product of their environment, a product of their culture. But what we know for sure is that we have God's Word. And that should be the, the, the foundation upon which we stand. Certainly not the foundation of the Church Fathers. Um, They had a lot of things wrong, and and, and we shouldn't criticize them for that either. Uh, They weren't speaking ex-Cathedra, they had the Holy Spirit, but there were a lot of things that they were working out. You and I. We have the opportunity to open God's word, and we've got it set before us. And in many cases, those those men and women did not uh, in in centuries past. So uh, the Catholic doctrine, of course, we've talked about in this program many times. Um, the doctrines are so far uh, out of uh, the boundaries of of what solid doctrine is that's been delivered to us. Um, we just shouldn't use them as a model for anything. Kathleen, great observation. Thank you very, very much. We have 30 minutes left to go in the Tuesday edition of the program. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Or toll free, you can call us at eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh
3: welcome back to the second half of the program 340-9585 before i go on to the next question um let me um, say one other thing regarding kathleen's question Uh, tradition the traditions of man have always been a destroyer of relationships with God. You know, I don't care what somebody did in the 5th century or the 15th century. I don't care what people do now in the church, at least insofar as it determines what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. We have been given God's word. Lori wrote a question in earlier. And uh, I want to emphasize again that Hebrews 1.1 says that in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and at many times and in various ways in these last days. And we live in the last days. He has spoken to us in son. That's a literal Greek, in son. In other words, he has nothing else to say apart from Jesus. And when you find people who rely on church history or church traditions that have been passed down, people that give too much credibility to, to, to the, the, the saints of the past, um, we see so many different interpretations. And those interpretations are different because they are imperfect people. Just like 2,000 years later, We're imperfect people, and we read through an imperfect lens, but God's Word, if we dig through it and rightly divide it, then we're going to get all of the tradition that we need for life and for living. The Word of God is all we need to know who Jesus is, to know about His character, to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and of His will for our lives. And no person ever, no matter how many centuries ago they lived, no matter how revered their writings are, no one's got it completely right, completely perfect. But at least if we're digging into the Word, we're going to be able to find the answers. If we're leaning on traditions of men, all we're going to do is get messed up. Here is a question from William. William says, what should we do with Bibles we're through with? And then he says, I feel strange throwing a Bible away. William, that's a question that personally I don't have an answer for. Uh, I feel very strange throwing away too. I've not done that. I I save mine. Um, um, I've given some of mine away with my notes and stuff in them. Uh, the only one that I'm, I'm really, really close to is the one that I took to Bible college with me um, not long after I first got saved I've had it for so long and I've got some of those notes that kind of chronicle my, my walk with the Lord and my growth in the Lord um, but, um, you know, there, there's when you're done with the Bible you're free to throw it away but I understand how weird that feels uh, and so I would keep it or I would give it to someone uh, who needs a Bible. Uh, on the other hand, some of our Bibles, you should see Paula's Bibles. Um, she uses her Bible so much that they're literally, you can't open them without pages just falling out all over. So it's time to to retire those Bibles. So if you feel strange throwing it away, put it in your library and keep it. Um, but, but it's okay to throw it away. Remember, it's not the, book, it's not the cover, it's not the pages it's the Jesus of the Bible that we worship and if we look for Jesus in our Bibles then the only one that really matters is the one that you have opened today so William, feel free, you're free to do whatever you want to do with it um, but I do perfectly understand that if you feel strange throwing one away, don't want to do it. Uh, it's probably why I have so many Bibles laying around our house and around this office and that kind of thing as well. So that's the best I can do. I've um, got a couple of anonymous questions. The first one says, Is cremation okay for Christians? Anonymous, yes it is. Um, I've been asked this question a bunch of times, and I always share. I hope this makes you feel... Okay with it, but uh, Paula and I have both chosen to be cremated. We think it's absolutely ridiculous to spend the amount of money that, that as a pastor, I watch people spend on funerals. Um, you know, when this old body's done, nobody cares what happens to it. So, cremation is perfectly okay. Culturally, we put people in the ground uh, and, and get eaten by worms. Um, dust to dust ashes to ashes seems to accomplish the same thing Um, it's just that the incinerator does in I don't know, 40 minutes what it takes nature to do in 40 years Um, so yeah, you're free to do that Um, low cost cremations are available uh, now I, I, I haven't looked for a while but at one time we were able to find um, somebody did it for like $300 I think it's probably a little bit more than that now but um, yeah save your money from the funeral and if you want to be cremated be cremated uh, I honestly don't care at all what happens to this old tent when it wears out um, I'm going to go and be in the presence of Jesus in an instant faster than in an instant and uh, I don't care. Paula teases that she's going to have me stuffed and put me on rollers so she can roll me around the house and I'll be there and talk to her and that kind of thing. I mean, won't be talking to her. She'll be talking to me. Um, But um, it just doesn't matter what happens to these old bodies. I have a dear friend who was a pastor here for a long time um, before he moved away. And um, he wants to donate his body to science. And I just think that's great. Organ donors, great. Uh, An opportunity to give life, or at least the quality of life, uh, to people who are still breathing. Um, Those are great things. You can do whatever you want to do with your body when you're done. It doesn't make any difference at all. Here is the other anonymous question. Um, Interesting one, why do churches often seem so segregated? There are black churches, white churches, Hispanic churches, Korean churches, all in the body of Christ. Shouldn't there just be one church? Uh, Anonymous, the only reason that is valid for having a segregated church is language. Um, We have a lot of Koreans in, in our body, a lot of Filipinos um, and if they speak English they stay here, but if not I'd rather them go to a church where they could hear the Bible taught in their own language. Uh, we need to be fed and, and so I understand language segregation. Now having said that, it's my opinion based on what the Word teaches but also based on our personal experience here at Calvary Chapel, that if you open the Bible and teach it in a way that everybody can understand, then your church is going to be very, very diverse. Uh, Our church could not be more diverse. It's an amazing thing to see um, the ages, the races, the backgrounds, um, the socioeconomic differences between people. And we're all gathered together here when the, when the church is open. We're, we're, we're worshiping our Jesus together. We're learning the Word of God together. And you look around, I do from my vantage point, and you see people that, apart from Christ, would never be in the same room. You never see people going out to dinner or going to, to, to some sporting event um, with these people. Um, but, but in the house of God. You see God bringing those who are being added to the church daily. And I really believe with all my heart, Anonymous, that my job is to teach the Bible. If I'm faithful in my job, then God can trust me with the people that he's going to bring. And that's why the diversity in this church is, is overwhelming. Uh, our our racial makeup in our church, our, our ethnic racial makeup, Um, is a really, really good picture of San Antonio, Texas. I would guess that we are 50 to 60% Hispanic here at Calvert Chapel. Um, uh, We have a Caucasian, a white um, um, group that's about the same percentage as here in San Antonio. Uh, for years, uh, the one thing that we were, we, I mean, the, the, I think the population, African-American population in San Antonio is like 11%. Um, and 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 our church is way, way more than that in terms of African-Americans um, because we're in a military community. The Asian population in our church is much larger than in San Antonio as a percent of the whole. And what it means is that we got a whole bunch of mutts That really work well together. Uh, Male, female, old, young, um, rich, very rich, not rich, very poor. Um, So we we just have pretty much people that fit in from all walks of life. That's the way it ought to be. Now, here's another reason there are segregated churches, Um, and and I I don't think this is a bad thing, by the way. Church traditions, anyway, in, in our country. People go to neighbor churches. Uh, it's a relatively new phenomenon in in the, the, the church that uh, people drive or come long distances. Um, but with the advent of celebrity pastors, and I'm not saying that's what I am, believe me. But, um, you know, you listen to somebody on the Internet, and then you go to your denomination and he's kind of dull and dry and he's not exciting uh, people will drive uh, an hour to get to church we have people that drive from every area in San Antonio uh, from um, um, Leon Valley from Helodes, uh from uh, New Braunfels from San Marcos and people want to drive in but for those who want a neighborhood church And I'm in favor of neighborhood churches because it's more convenient to serve and we all want to serve. But if you are in an all-black neighborhood and people want to go to a neighborhood church, then it's going to be black, by and large. We also say this, Anonymous. um, As you probably know, I'm married to a beautiful black woman. We've been together for 48 years. And there have been times in our past, before I started pastoring a church, where we would go to churches, and uh, I was always welcomed in in any church, if it was full of blacks or Hispanics. Um, we were always welcomed. Nobody ever made me feel uncomfortable. So uh, I I just think those are the dynamics, and you need to work out what works best for you. Uh, From our perspective, we're just going to keep teaching the Bible, and whoever God brings, we're going to welcome with open arms and love them to death. So um, I realize that there are churches in other parts of the country that are segregated by race and racism, Um, Certainly that would break God's heart, and yet we do it anyway. Um, But um, I think those churches in this day and age are are becoming fewer and farther between. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. It was good to see you Sunday.
2: Yeah, I loved it. I loved what you preached about, too. And, you know, about, about the woman with the perfume. In Simon's house. I was, was going to ask you. Um, oh, uh, you talk about cremation, okay? Well, is it okay for somebody to have a necklace of somebody's ashes that uh, that that passed away that has their ashes yeah. in it?
3: Yeah, Jimmy. When you say is it okay? Yeah, all these things are okay. Um, is is it is it something that's wise i don't know but but i, I don't find any fault if people feel um, it's easier to remember their departed their loved ones um, those things are important i would never keep an urn of somebody's ashes i certainly don't want Paula to keep an urn of my ashes when i'm gone and i'm going to go first um, but but if somebody is is um, uh, just wants to remember i there's a guy at the gym jimmy who uh, i just love this guy And he's got one tattoo, and it's um, on his uh, left peck over his heart, and it's a beautiful, beautiful tattoo of a photograph and i said oh is that your wife and he said no that's my daughter who died i always want to carry her over my heart um having somebody in a necklace or having their their ashes in a necklace is really no different than that now we can get hung up on those things we can we can worship them and we can uh, uh, you know give give improper meaning but as long as it's healthy i don't think there's anything wrong with that at all okay
2: ashes for me and my uh, sister, and I said, well, I said, I'm not going to wear them. I'm just going to take them to the Hill Country and then deposit them over there because thought I always wanted a piece of land in the Hill Country, so mm-hmm. I'm just going to put them over there.
3: See, I, th- I think those those are nice things, but but, but again, it's it's okay if somebody feels, um, well, I want to remember him or I want to remember her uh, for a long time. So do what whatever feels right, Jimmy.
2: Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Well, I remember it. him. Yes, yes, sir. Go ahead. Take care. Well, I remember him. I remember him in my heart. That's what I remember him. Yep.
3: Yep. Thank you, Jimmy. I'm, I'm like Jimmy in that such that, I'm not one for, for keepsakes and uh, mementos. Uh, i got a really good memory, and um, the, the people that I love that are with Jesus, uh, I just spend my time being jealous of them because they're with him and I'm not. <laughs> James wants to know, does God want us to be rich? I went to a church that taught if you had faith, you would prosper. Well, James, it's true that if you have faith, you'll prosper, but it's most likely not going to be financially. Um, God doesn't want us to be rich. What God wants us is to be rich in love for him. And the 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 prosperity church that you visited is not a healthy church. Uh, the doctrine at that church is... is uh, horrible even dangerous so it's it's not a church that you want to return to um, you know it's a, a really pernicious teaching that said you know if you just have enough faith God doesn't want you to be sick so we are your God wants you to be rich all you have to do is give to him that misses the whole point of the gospel which is self-denial not denial but self-denial to be my disciple you have to pick up your cross every day that means to die to deny yourself and saying yes to Jesus and no to you and then Jesus says, you follow me and um, while it's true that some Christians who love God with all of their hearts uh, have been blessed financially and materially um, but if the blessing comes from God. Some of us are blessed because we're great singers or because we're great athletes or because we're great actors or actresses. But if the wealth is a gift from God, it's because He can trust you with it. And James, those who really love the Lord and who've been blessed by the Lord financially are the ones that understand that they can't outgive God and everything that God gives them belongs to him. We have benefited uh, over the years uh, in in our ministry at Calvary Chapel. I can go back even farther to the time I was in Bible college, and after the first semester, I couldn't afford to to go again. And there was a billionaire, and you know, billionaires weren't as prominent in 1994 as they were as they are today. Um, but there was a billionaire who told the pastors at the Bible college look if you've got some students and they want to follow God they show promise they can't afford it I'll take it and I never know learned who that man was um, but all I know is he paid for all but one semester of my Bible college um, just because he understood that everything he had was a gift from God That's everything belongs to God but the prosperity churches, James, that are so abundant here today. Um, no, God doesn't want you to be rich. He wants you to be passionately in love with him, whether you're rich or poor. Three four we've got time left for some calls. Here's a question from Anthony. He says, I know some churches teach that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ, How do they explain that? Anthony, those churches um, explain that away by tradition, the church fathers. This is a uh, kind of a follow-up to Kathleen's call earlier. Uh, The the church traditions that have been passed through the centuries have taught that there's um, a transubstantiation or consubstantiation that occurs, and miraculously it actually becomes the body or the blood of Christ. Um, And so they don't explain it other than that's tradition. But in order to embrace that tradition, Anthony, what they've got to do is they've got to completely throw away what the Word of God says. When we come to the table of communion, it is an honor and a privilege. But it is, in reality, a memorial service. Jesus said, whenever you do these things, do them in remembrance of me. When Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body. And I know some Lutherans who get very aggressive with me from time to time on the program, who will say, "Well, Jesus said it's His body. You always say to take the, the the Bible literally when you can, so this becomes His body." No, He said this is His body. He was in His body at the time. He didn't say, "When future generations come to the table, I'm going to my body is going to be there again." I remember, He was talking to the twelve and what he said was I'm going to sacrifice this body for you so these are traditions that have been passed down through the centuries um... they're they're wrong, I think sometimes they can be unhealthy but to suppose that something miraculous happens and that cup we drink actually becomes the blood of Christ or the bread that we break actually becomes the body of Christ. Is to miss the point. One, uh, one other thing here, Anthony. Um, I've had people who believe in those concepts say to me, well, you're just ruining communion for me if it doesn't become the body. But it should never ruin communion. It's a Thanksgiving memorial. It's a time that we should remember what he's done. Now, we take communion here on the first Sunday of every month here at Calvary Chapel. Um, it's just something that's so special it's so special we see the body participating from my vantage point on stage Anthony I watch the ushers passing out the elements and those ushers have a kid attached to them and so there's there's from five year olds up who are participating in serving during communion we're serving the body of Christ with the memorial of the body of Christ and to see how important it is. Uh, I do it three times every Sunday when we do it because I'm here here obviously all three services Um, and I would do it more if I could. That's how special it is. When Paul and I uh, first started walking with the Lord together right after I got saved, uh, I, I remember it, like it was yesterday how, what it was like to go into a church and, and there were times, and I'm not exaggerating Paul and I would go to three or four churches on a Sunday we'd just find a church, go to one service somewhere, go to a second service someplace else go to an evening service we, We'd go and when we would walk into a church we didn't know any schedules for communion but when we would see the elements spread out on the table we'd look at each other almost giddy so, oh Paula today is communion she'd say I know we get to take communion and it was it's just wonderful it is the most intimate thing that we can do but it's a memorial service Anthony and it's explained away only by tradition and a faulty interpretation a faulty hermeneutic of Jesus saying take and eat this is my body broken for you really only one minute Ooh, I thought I had more time see if I have one minute question. Here's one I'll come back to tomorrow. Is it okay? It's anonymous. Is it okay for Christians to date online? The answer is no. Now, I said earlier, the the, is it okay questions? It's not a sin, but where's the faith? And this is a question that I want to deal with uh, at length tomorrow because uh, we have a whole generation of people that they do everything online. So, anonymous, I'll get a better answer for your question tomorrow. Just following No for right now. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Stay warm out there. ask Paula if she wanted me to take her to dinner, and she said, No, it's too cold. So I'm going home to Paula. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up For Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel, Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word.